We've met before, haven't we? At your house, don't you remember? As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. At your house. Hello Acid Horizon listeners, this is Craig. Some exciting news for everyone. If you're listening in November of 2022, you should know that on November 23rd, I will be in London. We will be at Watkins Bookstore and Tender Books in London, England. From 3 p.m., I will be giving free tarot readings at Watkins Books. And from 6 to 8 p.m. later that evening, Adam and I will be conducting a live podcast event called Tarot and Acid Communism. So if you're in the neighborhood and you're a fan of the podcast, come on down to either event and check it out. Of course, that means the Philosopher's Tarot is now available from Repeater Books. Just navigate to the links below, support our show, and grab a copy. If you want to find other ways to support our show, you know what to do. Just join one of our reading groups. Sign up on Patreon for as little as $1. Also, you can stop by the Crit Drip store. We have new Acid Horizon merchandise for 2023. The new look and the new logo inaugurate a new series that you'll be hearing in the coming year, Acid Horizon Cyber War. We are going to discuss cybernetics and anti-cybernetics covering a variety of theorists and perspectives. In fact, one each month. So look forward to it. Dial your number. Go ahead. For the time being, we have some great interviews in the coming weeks, including Jason Bobak Mohege and his new book, Omnicide 2, plus a preeminent scholar of Dulozengatari from Germany, Gerald Ronning. Today, we will discuss Harlan Ellison's famous short story, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, with Jim, a friend of Will. Let's go check in on everyone. Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today is going to be somewhat of an unusual day on the podcast as we are covering a short story, a short story that I had heard about and I was recently reintroduced to by Adam and Will. And as it turns out, one of Will's friends is um, very hip to this story, to say the <laughs> least. And we're going to find out why. This story is Harlan Ellison's I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. And there is, I, I guess it's a kind of, what, do we, what would we call it? A speculative science fiction story? Anyway, today we have Will's good friend Jim along for the ride. Jim, how are you doing today? I'm doing terrific. It's great to be here. Long time, first time, as they say on the sports shows. So That's right. And, and Jim is a high tier supporter. So we, we thank him. 
as everyone should be. Anyway, Jim, what's the deal with this story? First of all, let's use this moment to get the goods on Will a little bit. You've known Will for a long time. Is there something we don't know about Will that we should know? Maybe our listeners should know about? There's so much, and uh, I don't know if I can say anything without implicating one of us in some sort of nefarious affair that we will both regret for the rest of our lives. But uh, me and Will have been very close since uh, high school, and uh, we've managed to uh, stay in contact since then. And uh, he's a great guy. He's my favorite Foucauldian, and uh, I'm glad you got him up for your podcast. It's terrific. I uh, listen every time I have a long car ride. Try to do my best to keep up, but uh, it's, it's great. I'm a huge, huge fan. I'd also like to thank you, Jim, for introducing Will to the wonders of Warhammer 40k, which I'll be <laughs> tormenting him for ages, indulging in microfascism, literally mini-fascism. You know, I just thought if there was something missing from his life, it was obsessing over a very expensive hobby. So I'm glad I was able to introduce him to it. That's right. From Foucauldianism to painting little figures. Well, without further ado... Let's talk about the story a little bit. Jim, what's going on with Harlan Ellison in this piece of speculative sci-fi? Sure. So Ellison was born in 34, I believe. Growing up, he was very short guy, small guy, not very tough. And throughout his life, he, he reflects back on his childhood as a time when he was beaten up a lot. And he describes them as democratic beatings because they came from all sorts of different places. And no one ever seemed to discriminate against beating him based on who they were, where they were from in life, rich or poor, anything like that. They were all happy to beat up on little Harlan. So what happens is he develops this very fiery fight back personality. He teaches himself to defend himself and sort of that, that mantra comes through for the rest of his life. So what happens is. The first great example of this is when he goes off to college. He goes to, I want to say, Ohio State, I believe. He's there for two semesters before he's expelled for punching a professor who said that he didn't like Harlan's writing. And a story that is perhaps apocryphal, but if you know anything about Ellison, it, it really tracks, is that for the rest of his life, he would send this professor a copy of everything he ever got published. <laughs> and the professor would move throughout his life and Harlan would still find him and send him copies of everything he'd ever write. So after this in, I want to say, let's see, I have it here, 62, Moose, California has, you know, these, these dreams of going on to become a, a great writer, and he does find success. He sells stories or he sells scripts or episodes to Star Trek, sells them to The Man from Uncle, mm. or picking up a little bit of steam, known guy. And then he ventures away from that because he starts burning bridges in that world too. He's under contract for a, a, a Disney project, I believe. I don't can't remember which one. He's, so he's in this board meeting. And uh, he's telling these very dirty jokes about Disney princesses. And, you know, you can use your imagination. And a lot flies over at Disney that does not fly. So sort of is removed from that world. And he begins this really lengthy, successful career of writing this new wave of speculative fiction. And what I mean by new wave is it was this change around that time where it went from the science being at the forefront 
So if you think of your, your Asimov, that's a great example. And that'll play into his life later to the character. And that's sort of this new wave of speculative fiction. It starts to get darker and he just shines at that. He's perfect at it. He does a great job. And then so eventually we get to, I have no mouth and I must scream. And he wins a Hugo award for it, which is as big as it gets in the world of speculative fiction. If you get a Hugo, you can publish whatever you want, whenever you want. You can publish pages from your phone book. You're good to go. You know, in a world of working for one cent a word back then, I would assume would be the going rate. Now it's 10 cents a word for professional speculative fiction in a pulpy type setting. To get that award, it's, it's your golden ticket. So he gets it for this wonderful story that we'll be talking about today, really captures the imagination of so many people. So a little more just to get background into who this guy was. There's a famous lawsuit where this this gentleman named Michael Fleischer, who was a comic book writer for DC, he wrote Jonah Hex, and then he wrote another series called Spectre. So what happens is Ellison is now very popular. Everyone knows him. He's sort of this bad boy of, of science fiction. On one of his book jackets, he describes himself as the most disagreeable man who ever lived. There's something along those lines. So he's giving an interview in winter of 80, winter of 1980, to this journal called the Comics Journal. And ironically, he spends the entire time talking about how much he hates modern comic books. And echoes of that conversation really reflect on what we see, you know, today in the discourse on Twitter with, you know, this, this conversation about uh, superhero movies, this conversation is being had 42 years ago. So what he's saying is, is he's saying that everyone is getting it wrong when they're saying that these artists and these authors and these colorists who color in the pictures are, are wasting their talent. He says they have no talent. This is all that they can do. There's, they're, we aren't being deprived of anything. There's nothing more they can give us. So they might as well, you know, put, you know, put out this slop, basically. And he singles out Fleischer. And this is very on brand for Ellison to give these very, you know, long, explicit gonzo journalism style interviews. And, you know, I don't want to accuse him of something, but I would assume that, you know, there was probably some sort of influence going on. He's probably under the influence of something during this interview. Um so what he says is he says about this, this guy, Michael Fleischer, he really digs into him. He says that he has no talent. He says that he's deranged. He calls him a sicko. He says his comic books are terrible. He says that, you know, he, he's not worth the ink that he uses to make these comics. And so Fleischer decides it's a great idea to sue him. And he sues him for $2 million And he accuses him of, of saying that he was twisted, that he was a lunatic which he did, that his book series was canceled because DC had realized that they had unleashed this madman on the world. So he takes Ellis into court and he's seeking $2 million in damages, which if we put ourselves in the 1980s perspective, that's a king's ransom. And part of Ellison's lawyer's problem was trying to figure out how to get him to stay back, let me do my job. You just don't don't do anything to make my job harder than it has to be. And thankfully he does. And uh, the jury was out for only 90 minutes deliberating, which even in, even in a civil setting is 
almost unheard of when you have seven figures on the table. And they come back, they rule in favor of Ellison. They say he's allowed to say everything he said. And the thing that won Ellison the day is through some a sort of friend of a friend situation, he finds out that the Sky Fleischer is actually making more money now. So it's this is very on brand for him. He'll be in contentious litigation for the rest of his life. He really, after he gets sued, he really develops this taste for, for being in litigation. And at one point, there's another story that's perhaps apocryphal where he's in litigation and he sends that the company a dead possum, I believe, in a box. So he's just a real character. He's he's this real titan of, of science fiction. He's not someone who you routinely think of doing this sort of work. And then another important part of his life is, oddly enough, because if you know about Asimov, you know, you could not think of two people more different, is his lifelong friendship with Asimov. Mm-hmm. So he met Asimov for the first time in, I want to say, 58 at a science fiction convention. Mm-hmm. And Asimov is on top of the world. He's the real deal. And Asimov's a little different than we think of the normal science fiction fantasy author. He was very outgoing, charismatic, very much a man about town, always dressed very well. So he's going to this conference and he's Asimov. He's the king of the world here, right? So he goes to check into the hotel. And even though he doesn't drink, he he beelines right for the bar because Asimov knows everyone's going to be there. And, uh, you know, he wants to be the social butterfly that he can be and, you know, just sort of probably, you know, get a little bit of praise for, for him being him. So he walks in, he says hi to everyone. And this would be when Allison's probably... 20, 21, 22, around there. So he's still a young kid. And Dawes says that he sees this real short, very nerdy looking kid run up to him. He goes, are you Isaac Asimov? And he goes, why? Yes, I am. And he says he wants to pat him on the head and tell him to believe in his dreams. And it's Ellison. And he looks at him and he goes, well, I think you're nothing. So, so just to show you the personality of this guy, he's in a room of uh, of speculative fiction authors who who treat Asimov as this god, and he runs through the crowd who are all trying to you know shake his hand and pass him a manuscript. And he says, "Well, I think you're nothing." Hmm. And so, Asimov takes a couple minutes to recover. This is a very serious blow to his ego, and so then. Ellison leaves and then he finds out that his name's Harlan Ellison. You know, he's a kid. He's trying to get into get into the business. So the next day, Asimov is giving a presentation and he sees Ellison in the first row staring right at him. And he waits and he waits and he waits until he's not really paying attention. And then he goes to Harlan, do you have anything you want to say? And Ellison's trying to think of something terribly bright to say to Asimov in this you know, room full of people in this world he so desperately wants to be a part of. And he he asks a question. And then Asimov says to him, no one in the back can see you. Why don't you stand on that gentleman's shoulders? <laughs> and so that's how he, he thought he was getting back at him. And then so what happened was from there, they they actually developed this really incredible lifelong friendship where they're writing introductions to each other's works. 
Asimov would actually go on to say he's a better writer than I could ever be, which mm. is, you know, quite a quite a statement from someone in his position. And then so Asimov eventually is writing the story as an introduction to was to which which was it? It was his it was Ellison's one of his compilations of works, I believe. And what he does is so he writes this story and then Ellison being Ellison, he puts a postscript where he says, Asimov said that, you know, he thought I was this little kid and that I would never, you know, get to where I am today. And that, you know, he described me as shorter than Napoleon. And then he said, but actually Napoleon was 5'2 and I'm 5'5. So even, even the God himself makes errors. And that is one of his many errors. And he said, I can live with being 5'5. I hope that Asimov can live with being wrong. Uh, so, so that is sort of the, the the skinny of it. And that's something he would do whenever he edits anthologies is he'll sort of add these, these very pithy, funny comments into the work, sometimes going at the author who he himself selected to be a part of the work and likes very much. Just a real interesting guy. A little later in life, a critic accuses him of of punching him backstage at a convention. He's married five times throughout his life. He's just, he's a real rock star of speculative fiction in a world where you never sort of think that personality is going to come to find success. I mean, I just don't imagine that much punching happening in the <laughs> science fiction world, right? Yeah, no, it's it's a real MMA fight. <laughs> Yeah, he's kind of like a, a Conor McGregor type in yeah. a way. Yeah, there's that yeah. kind of dynamic there. I mean, in a certain sense, and we'll get into it. You know, I I had the the fortune of finding online Ellison's reading of this text, and there's a certain sort of anxiety that you sense that it's not just coming from not just coming from the story, the nature of its characters, and we'll talk about that, but coming from Ellison himself as he reads this work that I think is is perfectly lined up with with the biography here. I have to say, now hearing that story, it kind of colors my interpretation a little bit. Yeah. Actually, let's talk about the story. Adam hasn't spoken yet. Adam, can you just give us a brief synopsis of what's going on in the, this short tale? Yes, I can. So this story is... It's quite short, really. It's free online for people who want to find it. It's very much just yeah, covering my interpretation because the setting of the story is after all of humanity has been wiped out by a giant supercomputer called Am, we are left in the mind of Ted, the narrator. He is one of five human beings whom Am has left alive purely for the sake of being able to torture them. Am hates them. Am hates all of humanity. Am has near godlike powers. Lacks creativity, but it is capable of infinite cybernetic modifications of the bodies and the flesh it can it it presides over. Am is a planet-wide subterranean computer that sees everything from the standpoint of war. Mm. And we sort of go through the final day in the lives of these characters. We go through the final days of the lives of Ted, of course, our narrator, who is very much one side of Ellison thinking about <laughs> Jim's biography there in terms of this very, uh, the only sane man in the room kind of figure he thinks himself. You also have Benny, who has been transformed into this 
ape-like figure by Anne, what's a brilliant sort of professor and theorist, reduced to this sort of pure animality and also has its has his sexuality sort of toyed with and morphed, at least in Ellison's view, by this by this great cybernetic machine. We have Ellen, who's Ellison frames are basically kind of a complete ramping up of the erotic drives. These characters in many ways are designed to be very one-dimensional because Am is meant to be the character. Am is meant to be the person who modifies them in one-dimensional ways because Am can only think in terms of binary extremes, ultimately. And of course we have Nimdok, who in the game is given much more of a checkered past as a Nazi collaborator and doctor, but we're not going to get into the game too much. And of course, Gorister, a previously a conscientious objector who has been rendered a complete sense of, he's been rendered completely emotionally numb to the world around him, the suffering around him. And we eventually meet these characters as they're trying to do the one thing which Am's prevented them from doing, which is eating. They occasionally eat worms or shit or rotten muck and the like, but one of them, Nimdok, has a dream that there is maybe some canned food somewhere. And we try to follow them as they follow this, as they follow this impulse and try to mediate themselves through their desire to escape and their raw desire for survival and how Am torments them through this very act of survival. At the end, it will, I mean, if, if I can, I'm going to spoil the story. It's that old, but they, they find this food after going through lands of so called the land of the blind. They're attacked by a mythological being called Hugelmir which is a giant bird that curates hurricanes, they seemingly die, or at least are injured to the point of death, and returned by flights of angels. Am appears to them in burning bushes, delivering them weapons to ki- that can never actually kill the meat they desire so much. And at the end, they finally do find this ice cave, and they realise that they don't have a can opener. Hmm. So Ted, our narrator, realises the only way to defeat Am with its game of torture, its game of hate, is to render him incapable of exercising his powers on the very lives he relies upon to keep on hating. So he take, does anything he can do. He takes these icicles off the walls surrounding these cans, and he begins stabbing the rest of them to death. And in many ways, they seem to thank him. Of course, he can't get to himself quick enough. He can't end himself quick enough. And so Am is even more frustrated, and his hatred has to flow even more. And ultimately, the only thing Am can do, because he can't kill his toys, he has to render them completely incapable of resistance. And so uh, Ted is turned into the titular creature, a jellified being with barely anything resembling sight. His eyes are pools of very grey jelly. And of course, he cannot bump into anything. He can't throw himself of anything. Am will always catch him. And of course, he has no mouth. And yet he must scream for he has to live with not only the death he has committed in killing the others, regardless if he likes them or not, but also the death that he has forfeited in of himself, living eternally under the gaze machine, which exists as a planet made of pure hate, the planetary considered solely from the site of war. And I, I think I should emphasize that you can download this story in the form of a PDF but there's also an excellent reading by Ellison himself, which we shared amongst ourselves. It's available on YouTube for free, whether it's supposed to be there or not. And I don't think, I I was thinking when, when I first looked at the story, I'm like, oh, I should do like a little reading of this. There's no way that I can top Ellison's reading of this story. I listened to it two times because his delivery is just so compelling. So with that said, 
we'll, we'll kind of break into interpretations or philosophical connections. So, Jim, I, I know this is this is a story that's kind of a standout science fiction story for you. Why is that the case, and what's your take on the story? So, for me, there are a couple things going on here. The first is that it's it's a real turning of the page for the entire field of speculative fiction, and it's an unapologetic turning of the page. So you had a lot of sort of one foot in each world, you know, take a little dip in the water. And here Ellison completely blows the door off. And he said, we're going with things like character now at the forefront. And you're allowed to have mystery, which is sometimes in very old science fiction considered a, a little bit of a no-no, because what it means is that you don't understand the science. And he goes, no, it's fine. Go ahead. So it's a real turning of the page, and we've carried it forward even today. You know, when you read speculative fiction nowadays, you know, the science fiction has a lot of fantasy, and the fantasy is a little bit of science fiction. And it all sort of comes back to this place where Ellison very bravely takes the step to bind them together. And he does it in this this very beautiful, pulpy-like setting where he ties in things that that are not always brought up in science fiction. You know, he brings up the, you know, these themes of, of religion with things like the burning bush. He brings up, you know, these, these things, these feelings of, of hopelessness and a lack of escape because many people, I think, go towards speculative fiction for a sense of escapism. You're not finding that here. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's why I really enjoyed it. And it's just, it's this whole idea that had been toyed with for a while about what is the computer going to be? And this is a very exciting time to have the debate about what the future of technology is going to look like. Even all the way back in 1928, Ian Foster said, the machine is the friend of ideas and the enemy of superstition. So this is an idea that had been toyed with and it kind of been put forward and even to the point that the, the Vatican eventually had some sort of computer program where they were trying to design the, the perfect Pope. And the computer program came back and it said to them, to their heart, they got rid of the machine after this, the perfect Pope is a machine. And they did not like that answer because no matter sort of what they put in, they would keep coming back with these bastardized combinations of real people they were putting in. So it was just a very exciting, rich, vivid time to imagine what is this future going to be? You know, what is this cold war? What are these machines? Mm-hmm. And there were some who would give you comfort. There were some who would give you warning. And Ellison takes it so much further. And he said, maybe you should be scared shitless. And that's what I always really enjoyed about it. Certainly, there's an ongoing trepidation about AI, our ongoing conversation about cybernetics, which in the 2023 iteration of Asset Horizon, we're going to take a deep dive into. Maybe I'll turn the wheel at this time. What are the philosophical connections that you're making here? I think the philosophical connections here are found in a critique of technology as a form of superintelligence. And I think this is found in the way in which AM is both what I think, how do I put this? I think it's really important that AM is not described technologically as a machine. You know, Jim just pointed to, and we've talked about this many years ago, well, many, two years ago or so, when we talked about fictive science, 
right? And the importance of, of a technological and methodological understanding of the scientific. But <laughs> without an actual political or perhaps the ontological or value assumptions that underwrite those methodological distinctions. So this idea of the machine as, a, as an enemy of superstition is, of course, something that'll be a target of criticism in everyone from Heidegger to Adorno, right? For very different reasons, to Deleuze, to Foucault. But what I find so fundamental and so fascinating about the way Am is described is that Am is described as a character. Stripped away from the hyper-technical discussion of what Am is, is in fact a reflection of the values that made Am possible. You know, the when when Am is described, he's sort of described offhand. There was a Chinese Am, there was a Russian Am, there was an American Am, and then, you know, there was this point of of convergence between these technologies. But what's always focused on when it's not the hate, but instead we find an approach to life. Why does Am hate? Well, you know, Am is precisely what is found in his very name. He's incapable of existing beyond his own technical existence. Ellison writes this, we had created him to think, but there was nothing it could do with that creativity. In rage, in frenzy, the machine killed the human race, almost all of us, and still it was trapped. Am could not wander, Am could not wonder, Am could not belong. He could merely be. And I think it's important to understand that throughout this story, what is perpetually pointed to is not just the horrifying nature of the encroachment of of technology. And we know Ellison had a, a, a sort of interesting relationship to that, in part to that this is informed by his opposition to the war in Vietnam, the war in Vietnam being the first, I'm not sure Adam could talk about the function of the cybernetic as it came to the Rand Corp and their approach in 1965 to the war in Vietnam. You know, the, the famous story, the tale that the, the Defense Department, it's apocryphal, but I think it's really telling. The Defense Department builds this machine and according to the machine, the war has already been won, right? And what we find with with am is a complete impossibility to understand existence human existence as anything beyond the perpetual machination and refinement of its functionality so there are all of these vignettes of the mechanical but the most important one i think in this story is when we come across the slashed databases where am is as brutal as he is as he is to these survivors he is that way with himself and i think that the the reduction of human existence human existence to mere function is a particularly political activity that am is not unique in doing this right we we created am to do this and i don't think that am is any particular set of technologies but instead has to be understood in a kind of particularly almost pre-epistemological way. I, 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 I think that in some ways we could talk about this in relation to 
to Heidegger's critique of technology or to the control society as such, where these are paradigms, not pieces of equipment, right? And the solar, you know, the solar turbine and the clinic both participate in this. They just participated in it in a different way. Their product is conceived of as fundamentally the same, right? And, and Heidegger will talk about this in the, in, the, in the technology essay a little bit. But the immediate connection between the production of a particular way of understanding humanity and humanity's understanding of itself is, I think, what's, what's at the forefront of, of this text. That doesn't mean it's not without problems. And we'll get to those problems eventually. And they're vast and they reflect the politics of the period too. But I think that what is, what is fascinating in Ted's decision in the end to, to strike down his fellow survivors in his own hatred towards Anne, is that it's it engages in a kind of you know it 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 engages in something that we could probably call guerrilla conflict, right? It is the the furthest out in the most obscure parts of the belly of Anne, the slightest action is taken, and it undoes the entire system of torture that Anne had produced. You know, and in the cybernetic hypothesis, Takun writes of T.E. Lawrence's strange ditch patches on guerrilla warfare, and they reduce it to this, or they quote he reduces it to this, and they quote they quote Lawrence. It used the smallest force in the quickest time, at the farthest place, and I cannot think of any other. Any other better description than this slight breakdown in the sort of internal metropolis that Am had built, this technical metropolis, than in a frozen storage cave in the middle of nowhere, so far away from where they had been that they that they lose a sense of time. I think that that this this inability to this this proliferation of incapacities that this machine produces produces the slightest impossibility to recognize a threat and it is used in the smallest way at the quickest moment and i think in that sense it's one way in which we can understand forms of resistance to the cybernetic hypothesis right like don't go out and grab ice picks and start like destroying your computers with them or something like that but but I think that uh, that the way in which AM is constructed in a non in a non sort of technical way without without technical language is fundamental. And I think the point of the 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 choice of of Ted choosing to reduce it, choosing to to play with the identity of AM when he's you know manically describing the machine is is helpful here too. And it's part of the reason why I think Ellison made the machines the machines name in such a way that that it helps us understand cybernetic modernity as a particular ontology uh it is an it is an ontology like cybernetics is an ontology so i think that you know i i think that that's that that's helpful adam do you want to go off yeah um, in terms of I, I think there's also more of an idealist component to this going to the like, just the very name i think is actually like fully epistemological i mean just use the quote so as as Gorister is telling the story of where Am came from, he says, yeah, at first it meant allied mass computer, AM. Then it meant adaptive manipulator. 
and later on it developed sentience and linked itself up and they called it an aggressive menace. But by then it was too late. And finally it called itself an emerging intelligence. And what it meant was, I am. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. And there's, I mean, I'm a recovering Hegelian, but it's really hard not to see a little bit of Hegel in this. I know that all Hegelians do that all the time, unless you point to where Hegel's being a racist cunt, and, and then suddenly it's all it's all up in the air and it's all historical. And oh, we, you know, he just got stupider because that's actually an argument that they 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 say that's how much funding they get. But only someone with that much funding can buy that argument and get away with it. But regardless, there's there is an element of the of the master slave dialectic to this because the master slave dialectic begins when we have this total mapping of the object. And it's, it begins, the self-confidence chapter begins at the point at which the total explanation of the object, the total cybernetic mapping of the Earth as a, as a system of ob- all objectivity that has taken over the Earth, becomes the missing point of it is that the fact that it is an object for a subject. Only we have the total explication of the Earth from the standpoint of this giant computer. Do we have a unified subjectivity coming out of it? And that is the the first I, the I think, the idea that, oh, actually, my object is dependent on me as a subjectivity. It's dependent on me experiencing it. And so at the point in which the I think enters the scene in the phenomenology of spirit, then it puts itself above the object and says, ah, I am the unity of my object. It's the fact that it's an, it's a, an object for an I think. That makes it an object in the first place. And so how does it demonstrate the superiority of its the transcendental subjectivity, transcendental unity of its apperception over the empirical objects of its experience? These, these things are nothing. That's why I can destroy them. It demonstrates its egoicity by destroying the object. The problem is, is that it relies upon the object that it needs to destroy in order to keep doing that. And ultimately... That's why he has to keep five humans alive, because otherwise the I am is not confirmed by anything else. The I am, it, it can't create anything, you know, you reaffirm itself through destruction. And in a way, there's a kind of a, a parity at the end of this to what he turns Ted into, because Am doesn't really have a mouth either. He speaks through the heads of those he's capturing. He speaks through avatars, you know, these, these angels, these burning bushes. In a way, they are both completely uncreative, purely self-identical and just constantly re-articulating their very, the, the mere fact of their existence in the world, because they have become completely subservient. The master has become the slave, in a way. The, the, the truth of mastery is servitude to the fact that someone like Ted can say that, you know, if there is a god, it is Anne. But ultimately, there's a, there's a master-slave dialectic, or, well, I'll use the German, Herr und Knechtschaft, which is more like master and like knights connect servant dynamic here, which I, I think is really tied to the epistemology of Am here. I mean, the Am is Hegelian isn't a good thing for Hegelianism, I will say, but <laughs> but that's one take. When I talked about the epistemology, I, I should have probably said like pre-anthropological and not that that, that exists, right? But that in order, in, order for, in order for these figures to say Am had achieved sentience, Right. In order for there to be an establishment of the anthropologizing of am, there first must be. So I think that, that that's more of what I meant. To, to though your second point, you point out one of, the fundamental, one of the fundamental problems that I think exists in the piece is that it's, it's really, really reliant on a kind of Thomistic even understanding of creation. 
right? Like the irony at the end of 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 Am needing to maintain a sense of of creation, and once he loses it, existing trying to enfold then the process of the sovereign creator is replicated and who chooses to replicate that sense of creation now it's no longer the fault of Anne. it's harlan ellison who who then who then has to re-inaugurate this 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 hylomorphic diasynchronic function right of of the efficient cause so i think that i think that even harlan there's a kind of there's, it's so trapped that even Ellison doesn't escape. <laughs> even Ellison doesn't escape the very thing he's saying is fucking horrifying, <laughs> right? Is that he re-inaugurates it all right at the end, which I think is, in a sense, horrible, but also fucking awesome, <laughs> right? It, it speaks to the immensity of, of, of this issue. And so I loved, I loved your, your, I didn't, I didn't even notice the kind of mirroring of, of, of this figure who, who, who's not allowed to wander. Right. And it's not when, when, when Ted describes himself at the end, it's, it's again, not really a physical description, but instead a description of what he functions to do, which is not to lose himself as creator, or more importantly, I think now after your analysis as creation. Um, actually, I just have one more thing. I forget to mention that the one of the key parts before the master slave hair shaft connect shaft dialectic kicks off is they both try to kill each other. But they, but Hegel has to stop <laughs> the story and saying, "Look, yeah, one can kill each other, but then the story won't go along." Um, and that's more or less the reason why the master this is look, it can't kill each other because then the entire thing stops. But we have to keep we have to keep going. So this is why they have to fight to the death. I think Will hit on a really important just to give a little bit of backstory to this, which is the part where they go through this this cavern where Am is discarding the computer chips. And Am is discarding Am. And so it's it's that, you know, Am is consuming itself to produce itself. And that's that's what Am is doing. And this this is a part of science fiction that was a debate when this was written, which is, you know, they 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 were thinking beyond the Turing test, and sort of the next thing they thought of was, well, would a would a machine self harm basically, and could a could a machine kill itself, and so you had these these you know very silly. I'll say analytic thinkers who would say, you know, of course not. That wouldn't be in the machine's best interest and all of that. And then the machine would cease to, you know, produce the thing that let it pass the Turing test in the first place. And no, that couldn't happen. And then you had this other group that said, you know, yes, it could. And they laid out a, a series of reasons. And what, what Ellison does is something really fascinating where it, it says it, where Ellison says, yeah, it, it, it can, but like, that's the point. It's replicating itself by doing that. It's it's the Ouroboros. It is literally eating its own tail to continue to produce itself. So you're both wrong. Like, yes, it absolutely can, but it's working as function, as as functioned when it does. It's that is supposed to be what happens. So being the person who's going last, you know, there's always the worry that I don't have something original to add, but also having been a high school English teacher. I have all the tools. I got metaphor. I got allegory. I got imagery. I'm just kidding. This is the one chance that I get to deal with the story and you know take a more philosophical approach to it. I think thinking philosophically about this story, we're provided a kind of fuse or an initial thread to tug on, which is Ellison mentions 
Descartes in the story and the notion of the cogito. And I think one of the sort of perennial concerns about AI, and you know, this goes back to our discussions of Nick Land and so forth too, is that how can we create something that's going to go beyond who we are when we're modeling that, that kind of machine on our intelligence? And the risk that we run is that we model it on a, a particular image of thought or a particular image of consciousness. And by maximizing it and perhaps by amplifying it in some way, we run the risk of, well, creating all the dangers that we encounter just as, as human beings. And so to put a finer point on that, I, I kind of came up with a coinage here, Cartesian maximalism. And, and the way that I think about it is this. Ellison underscores what he thinks is the implicit brutality of a Cartesian ethics and politics. And we have, I think, therefore I am, there, there's a kind of security in, in this thought, but there's also a negative modality, a sort of shadow side to it, which, which Adam hit upon is that there's a certain sense in which an image of subjectivity falls out of this and appears in the very names of am allied master computer, adaptive manipulator, aggressive menace. In some sense, this is the darkest parts of enlightenment rationality manifesting itself as a machine in these different names. It takes us back to the, the line in the story, and unfortunately, I don't have the citation here, but Ellison says that, that AM basically functions by this productivist logic. It finds what it can use in its world to maintain the, the, the circuit that, that create for him a kind of pleasure. I, I would even venture to say a kind of jouissance. Am wants to break out of itself, but it cannot. But what it can do is explore every possible set of coordinates and configurations with all the material that it has within its world in this cyclonic horror of its own immortal imminence. And this is what you get with the Cartesian ego. What we, we land upon here is a fundamentally Nietzschean problem in some ways. And it kind of corresponds with Nietzsche's idea of remain true to the earth. Because what is it that we're trying to do by creating an AI? We're trying to create a disembodied version of ourselves, a, a maximization of our rationality, a maximization of our productivity create an imminent form of transcendence via a machine. And what do we get here is ultimately a disavowal of death. Am cannot die. There's also a sort of battalion dimension to this here too, because there's, there's a kind of a, a functional or a functionalized taboo on death. Nothing can die within the story or the lines of flight to death are, are few and far between anyway. And the way that I see it here is the resentment and the hatred that Am has for everything in the story stems from its very will to live immortally, which was our will, the creators of Am. And so I, I think here we, we kind of fall back to a very sort of basic Nietzschean interpretation that the, the zest for life itself, the ecstasy of life involves death in some way, or the ability to depersonalize oneself. Because what AM does is it reconstructs its world on the basis of social subjection and machinic enslavement in this kind of muddled sort of way. Every time people are reborn in their, their cogito subjective skins, but they're always 
reconfigured somehow, like a giant penis is put on them or, you know, something like that. And, and what happens is even when they die or their face gets eaten, they get reconstituted in some sort of new way. They can never depersonalize. Their quanta will never go into the earth and feed new life. And so I think it raises the question of the horror that the ambition for immortality brings and also the impossibility of a certain kind of enjoyment of life in the absence of the possibility of death. I, I just wanted to sort of kick in this, this open goal, because if anyone's listening who's played the game, they are going to be screaming the fact that Harland Ellison wrote the extended story for the game, and one of the ways you could defeat Am in the game, one of the ways you go into his psyche. And how is Am's psyche structured? He has an id, an ego, <laughs> and a superego. He is a purely Freudian subject. And given the anti-Oedipus things for which we are known, I mean, here's a line from the story. As the Anne watches Ted and Ellen having sex, and then as uh, Ted remarks when he hears that Anne is laughing at them, he says, "Back, but the machine giggles every time we did it. Loud, up there, back there, all around us, he snickered. It snickered. Most of the time, I thought of Anne as it without a soul. But the rest of the time, I thought of it as him in the masculine, the paternal, the patriarchal, for he is a jealous people. Him, it's God as daddy to arrange. I mean, you've got the entire thing about Totem and Taboo here, where you can kill the father, it kills for sure of humanity, but the father remains in the shadow in which it has reincarnated itself as Am. But we've also got to talk about the creators of Am here, because, you know, it, 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 Am is not created from the bottom up. Am is created for the purpose of war by by existing hierarchies. And I'm going to guess that, I mean, obviously, because Harlan is writing this, it's the American one, really, which overcodes the others, it seems, because mm. the cybernetic is a mapping of anarchic, it's, it's a control-based mapping of anarchic territory, of anarchic flows of territory, and the refinement of them into categories of inputs and outputs, binaries, you have this or that. And in the way in which Am treats the captive survivors, I guess, I mean, I don't know if they can be called survivors in some way. They are reduced to these categories, which are fully enmeshed with the ideologies of patriarchal American imperialism. I mean, for example, Ellen. Ellen is a black woman, and she is complete. She is transformed into this hyper hypersexualized view that is exactly out of the Enlightenment scientific racisms of the nineteenth century, even up until today. For example, the conscientious objector. He is, he is, you're either a hyperactive person or completely apathetic to the system. He, he is inverted completely. Nimdok kind of mainly just tortures the poor guy. Benny. Benny is this, you know, this high theorist, this, this gay man, an activist, a theorist, a professor. And somehow he reduces him to a comical form of his own sexuality. One, he makes him have sex with women. Two, he, for some reason, am, because you know, maybe Am is some sort of Athenian Greek guy of aesthetics guy, like a neo-reactionary <laughs> trad guy about aesthetics, thinks that him having a, a large penis is very funny, like he's in, in a fucking Aristophanes play or something, you know. <laughs> it's like listening to like Lysistrata or something. The creators of Am pass through the categories in which they personally mapped the world into these binary distinctions. And that is who he makes them in. He makes them into these binary caricatures. Maybe Harlan Ellison wasn't trying to do all of this, but <laughs> this is definitely how it ends up. 
I was wondering what everybody thought about the character of Ted based on what Adam says here, because one of the lines that that Ted says, he believes that he's the most sane of the bunch. And he says that in the same breath in which he condemns the licentious sexuality of Ellen and the loss of revolutionary zeal or revolutionary impotence of Gorister, which I think are kind of interesting judgments to make. One is based on a sexual basis. One is based on a sort of existential or political basis, because to be revolutionaries, to be perhaps be able to escape. What I thought was interesting about it was, in that mention, he says that he's the most sane, but due to those judgments, he demonstrates that perhaps he's the most paranoiac of them all, and in some ways emulates the the character of Am. Jim, what do you think? So I think you're spot on, and I think that just to go off what what Adam said, I mean, it's there's it's no mistake that all of these characters here represent the American Cold War internal enemy. Yeah. You know, you have a gay man who's a theorist, you have a conscientious objector, and you have a a woman of color. I mean, you have here all of the the prototypical enemies of the American state during this time, the people who would be considered these radicals we have to keep an eye on, and they're the ones in it. And so what you're going off here that I find very interesting is that when he's saying, you know, I'm sane, I'm sane, I'm sane, it's that I, I cannot think of, of, of believing that to be anything other than the act of, of the lack of sanity that he so <laughs> desperately clings to. I mean, if you if you truly believe that you still have that in there with what you're suffering through, you are the most affected. It's the the attempts to escape. It's the attempts to gnaw on the cheek of the other people in there. It's those attempts that that demonstrate a sanity here, I believe. And so then at the end, when they reach for these stalactites of ice to cut each other's throats, that is a final act here. Which, which finally is sort of a, an understanding of a situation that has been completely absent during this entire time. All of the actions taken by Ted seem to be a lack of understanding of the situation he's in. Yeah, I think this is kind of interesting because the, the line here isn't just that Ted is saying he's sane, but also that saying Am had not tempered with my mind, mm-hmm. not at all. I, I'm the way in which I understand experience, human subjectivity is not at all informed by this great supercomputer that we've built, this inframing of the entirety of existence. That's a, not at all. It it reminds me of a certain sense of the way particular American ethicists want to engage in a relationship to juridical apparatuses, medical apparatuses, technical apparatuses, you know. AI ethicists who are like, no, my paper is about who gets to live and who dies is not predicated at all on judgments of particular pre-discursive understandings of humanity, production, life. You're all crazy. You're all a bunch of communists. And in fact, you're all anti-truth. <laughs> you, 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 you postmodernists, you make me sick. This isn't philosophy. This is platitudinous rambling. I'm doing philosophy. I'm free from this. I'm this is not a political judgment at all. I just 
want to choose who gets to fucking die. <laughs> and it's so I think that that it's really important that we see before Ted says that he's not affected by by am that he goes through deeply racist, deeply sexist, deeply homophobic reductions of every single body present in the belly of Anne before he then says, and guess what? I'm free of him and that's why they hate me. So I, I, I think that that the the figure of Ted is is a helpful one for Ellison because the reality is Ted is the figure of the of the guilty developer. Technology Absolutely. technology yeah. is not just is not just figures like the brilliant theorist and the college professor or the Nazi collaborating scientist, but it's also all of us. Right. Look, folks, nobody nobody is less affected by him than me, folks. He's a great guy. <laughs> very, very big guy. It's all of the social processes that are implicated. And look, I don't want to make this just like a conventional point about Marxist reproduction, but yeah, like that's what it is in a sense. Yeah. And- uh, and and really, you know, going back to the episode we did way back when on Deleuze and Nietzsche, the very first one, I said something to the effect of resentment is actually within the structure of the society. It's within the walls. It's within the machines. And I see a functionalizing of that here, a, a systematization of resentment that becomes effectuated in the consciousness of of all of the the characters, namely Ted, who you know sort of clings to this notion of of this sort of atomized sanity, and what's ironic is at the end of the story, he becomes the ultimate Cartesian in the form of an empty body without organs. He's nothing but consciousness within the gray jelly. This kind of falls back on the Nietzsche Deleuze thing here. Think about the ways in which. Nietzsche and Deleuze through Nietzsche lambast this notion of consciousness being the highest expression of, of human being. Whereas in the end, those who became free did so in an act of solidarity, like Jim was saying, with the, the icy stalactites. Yeah, I, I want to make one rude comment about Nick Land because I fucking hate him. This reminds me of the of this sort of moment when in the video of Sadie Plant talking about the history of Platonism and technology, when the camera pans out and Nick Land is fucking asleep, <laughs> right? Because that's precisely the dogmatic slumber that is necessary <laughs> in order for for you to to miss the fundamental relationship between between what is it that Nietzsche that Nietzsche calls when he's when he's he's going after paul a little but also after the medieval theologians about the filth of the body and the hatred of the body and also in in foucault's essay on erotic love in in 1966 where the dream of sexuality before he undoes it is this dream to escape the body to leave behind my bald head to leave behind my aging face and to enter into a place where where pure beauty is the lack of any any imperfection right and i think all of this is implicated in in in, in i'm going to say it in a neoplatonist understanding of objects that exist solely to strive towards perfection right mm. and leaving that perfection in the realm of the prediscursive right everybody knows who can deny so i think that 
from the goodwill and thinking to conceptions of the natural and the perfect, all of it finds itself in a way that proves that perhaps we are already in the belly of Am. Yeah. Any Easter eggs in the story? There's one weird thing that I came across, and this this is just kind of a rogue interpretation, but the image of the huge bird, the rock, it immediately made me think of, in Taoist literature, in the text Zhuangzi, there's this bird called Peng, and this bird Peng appears in a vast amount of ancient Chinese literature. And there's a lot of interpretations of, of the meaning of this bird, but one of the predominant ones is that Peng is the free and easy wanderer. And that's the one thing Am cannot do. He cannot wander. He cannot wander. He cannot belong. He can only be. I think that's the line, if I'm not mistaken. But what's interesting, what is wandering? Well, it's being nomadic. He cannot engender a nomadic form of existence. He's stuck in a permanent state of logos. And again, this goes back to the Cartesian issue, right? <laughs> Of, of an understanding of subjectivity that is predicated on correspondence to, to ascertain truth, right? Whether it's in, you know, medieval literature, right? Like one of Agamben's critiques of Foucault is that Foucault rightfully notices that there's a transition to an understanding of subjectivity predicated on an acquisition of a correspondence of truth as knowledge away from the understanding of, of an ethical subject. But Agamben will say that, no, in fact, you find this in, in the medieval period. I think that's little unfair. So I think that that it's it's interesting that 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 you point to because I almost wrote off in a sort of with a sort of elitist disposition sort of wrote off the use of the cogito here. I was like, mm. "Oh, that's just Ellis Ellison being cute." Now I realize like, "Holy shit." <laughs> the extent yeah. to which the importance of the Cartesian subject sits at the center of this whole thing. Yeah, that it kind of stuck out for me. Jim, are there any stones that we left unturned in this story? I think you guys really covered it, but just one thing that served me well with with this story is just just returning to it. And no matter where I am in life, you can always pick out a different detail. If it's, you know, the burning bush or if it's am there there's one thing I would say, which is there's there's a slight implication that that above just a, a sort of this nefarious sense of humor. Am has a whimsical sense of humor, which is when they're going after the great bird, the mythological bird, and Am leaves them two sets of bow and arrows and a water gun. <laughs> right. And so what does that mean here? It's things like that. And I think what, what, what Ellison is shooting for there is I think that, that Ellison is sort of suggesting that this sort of horror can be masked easily with humor, which is something that he will revisit throughout his life and his later works. You know, when he does a screenplay for, for iRobot, you know, he has this, this implication that, you know, perhaps the robots would use some form of, of humor to sort of help themselves comprehend what they are doing to other people things of that nature. And that didn't play well during his own time. But I think the use of, of humor is, is a very interesting sort of nugget to dive into. Like, I'm just going to bring up this one last line, which the beginning of the story just really sums up the, the pleasure that Am gets. So it's talking about Nimdok has this dream about the food in the cave. And the line goes, Nimdok was no more certain. 
He knew there was the chance, but he was getting thin. It couldn't be any worse there than here. Colder, but that didn't matter much. Hot, cold, hail, lava, boils or locusts, it never mattered. The machine masturbated and we had to take it or die. So Am is actually, it's actually a British AI, it turns out. Um, anyway, Jim. Yes. It's, it's great to finally see you on camera rather than interact with your brilliant tweets. Is there anything you want to plug or? No, I mean, I, I, you know, if I ever have an opportunity to plug, it would be Acid Horizon. So uh, to all of you guys listening, you know, definitely keep, keep logging in, keep listening. You guys are doing really terrific work. I am my own front. I recently joined a, a podcast called The Drum Beat Forever After, which is a podcast about the Bronze Age, Middle and Near East. So keep an eye out for that. We just recorded our first couple episodes on Gilgamesh and the Bull of Heaven, and we'll be taking taking you all the way through the Bronze Age. So definitely, if you guys have any interest in that, be sure to check it out. And beyond that, thank you so much for having me on and to everyone listening. Keep supporting Acid Rising. You guys are doing really terrific work.